Lord Jesus. Does anybody remember what chapter, what subject we talked about last week? Adoption. Does anybody remember what subject we talked about the week before that? What was that, Sarah? I heard you. That's right. Yes, justification, adoption, sanctification. Before that was effectual calling. Um, We're turning tonight to the doctrine of sanctification. We're following that ordo salutis, or that order of salvation. And we're looking at, the confession has begun in this section on the order of salvation, looking at the work first of the sovereign God in our salvation, and then it will talk about the things that we do, the graces of the work of the sovereign God as it moves to the things that men do. Um, So we are effectually called, justified, adopted, and sanctified. You know, we put things in a logical order because it's helpful and there's um, there's some logic to it, but many of these things are happening in a moment, right? God awakens the heart. He regenerates us. Faith is given. So how, how it all exactly plays out, you know, someone might want to ask the question, um, how long before someone has, after they're regenerated, do they believe? Is it the moment that God quickens? You know, is that how it we can ask him when we, when we get there, right? Um, we believe that it's clear that regeneration, the work of the Spirit, must precede faith. God acts first. He draws us. He helps us. He gives the gift, the ability. He changes the heart. He changes the mind. He, he changes the will. He renews our affections, and we come and behold Christ in a new and fresh way for the first time. Uh, when we think about sanctification, I want to. I want to just. I think this is helpful to think about that. There's two types of sanctification. We usually talk. We usually talk about uh, the second one on here is, and it's what the the, the chapter is mostly about. But we don't want to miss the first type of sanctification. These are definitions from Sam Waldron. Uh, and so, firstly, we would say that we have been definitively sanctified. We might say that in the past tense, you, Christian, have been sanctified. You have been made holy. You have been set apart. That is something that God does. Commonly, uh, you might hear the word positionally, you've been sanctified. It's not my favorite word. It's not a bad word. It's not my favorite word. Definitively, I think, is maybe a bit better. Um, But Waldron says that this is, or to sanctify is to set apart from common use to God. When something is sanctified, it becomes God's special possession. Thus, at conversion, a Christian is definitively sanctified. The word that is used, that's translated, is also translated holy often. And we see this word used for all sorts of things in the Bible Um, Moses went to meet God on the holy mountain. And so God can call a mountain holy because he sanctified it. He set it apart. He used it, his his very presence, I would 
I would think there as well, sanctified it. But we read of vessels and things of bronze and gold that are sanctified. They are in and of themselves not superior maybe to other items, right? I'm thinking of things used in the temple for religious purposes, but because they have been sanctified or set apart or made holy, they are unique. They're used now for God. And so you remember, was it in the book of Daniel, when the things that had been raided from the temple, the king thought he was going to show off and grab them at his party and as everyone's getting drunk and they use the vessels from the temple to drink out of and the handwriting on the wall and he is condemned there. Um, those, those utensils were not intrinsically um, holy in and of themselves. They didn't come down from heaven, but they had been set apart. They've been sanctified by the Lord, made holy because God claimed them for a unique purpose. We might say then for the Christian, there is nothing inherently unique in you, the believer, but God has snatched you up, if you will. He has set you apart and called you his own and made you holy. So you are now his. You have been definitively sanctified. You are a holy one or a saint. But the second type of sanctification is what we commonly think of, and that is that we are being sanctified progressively. Right? We can say it in the past tense, you have been sanctified definitively, and we can say it in the present tense, ongoing tense, you are being sanctified, or God is sanctifying you. In uh, Waldron says that one's practical, or progressively means one's practical content, conduct, excuse me, I don't know why that, that is there, moves from sin to righteousness in a progressive manner in the Christian life by the power of the Spirit. So this is a transformation that is taking place, a renewal of the mind, a growing in grace. Question 38 of the Baptist Catechism. I did not put the words of the confession tonight in the handout because it basically takes the whole it takes the whole handout, so I decided not to do that tonight. Um, but question 38 of the Baptist Catechism asks the question, what is sanctification? And it says that it is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more, you see the progress there, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And so it's God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. In that vein, why don't we ask God that he might sanctify us this night through this study. Our Father in heaven, we come again in prayer and we come twice, Lord, because we, we, we acknowledge a need of sanctification. Now, we want to progress in the Christian life. We, we, we want to grow, Lord. And we don't want to be stagnant or stale. We certainly do not want to, to go backwards and backslide. And so we pray, God, that you would give help. We pray that you might give strength now that, that this time be set, of, set apart 
unto you for your purpose, that, that we might learn of these things and that, that what we learn here from the confession might help us in this endeavor as you work in our lives by the power of your Spirit through your Word. And so would you be with us this evening, Lord. Um, help us to be a people that, that pursue holiness, that strive toward holiness. Help us to see your law as a grace, as good to us, as, as commandments that are not a means of our salvation, but a, a means of our pleasing of our Lord. And so be with us, we pray. Sanctify us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at paragraph 1. This is the, the longest. I've, I've entitled it the description of sanctification. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified really and personally, through the same virtue, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And so, As the confessors are often doing, they're tying this chapter back to what has come previously, as we see the the unity of the work of the triune God. But we are introduced, I believe, to a new phrase here, maybe not a new concept necessarily, but a new phrase in the confession, and that is the idea of union with Christ. It says there, they who are united to Christ. Uh, This is a doctrine that is rich in the Bible. It's especially rich in the writings of Paul. You read uh, Paul and he uses two little words, two words over and over. One of them is Christ. The other one is in, right? In Christ. And we see that language over and over and it, it may seem like a small little phrase. It's not that, in, not that uh, important, but it packs a ton of theology within it. Our union with Christ is where all of Christ's benefits flow from. It is how we are attached, if you will, to Jesus and how we receive from Him what He did on a cross. He died on a cross many centuries ago. Somehow that work, the merit, the virtue as it calls it, has to come to us. It has to be applied. It It has to become ours, if you will. And that happens through union with Christ. Uh, Again, in the Baptist Catechism, uh, question 33. Question 33 asks, how, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? So how do we how do, how do we get that? The Spirit apply applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So is God, by the, by the power of His Spirit, 
awakens our heart, mind, soul as we are effectually drawn to Him, born again. Faith is worked in us and we are, by the power of the Spirit, united to Jesus. Number 35, what are the benefits of those that are effectually called? What, what, what benefits do they partake of in this life? And then we read there, as we've been discussing, um, justification, adoption, sanctification, and several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. William Lyford, I'll, I'll quote him at length later, but William Lyford, who is quoted by Sam Renahan, or, uh, James Renahan, says this, We are made partakers of all that he did or suffered or conquered, all as is as really ours. It's a weird way of saying that, but as if it is really ours, because it is really ours, as if we had done it in our own person. So we partake of his suffering, of his conquering, as if we really suffered and conquered as Christ did. So we are united to Christ, given a new heart, given a new spirit or a renewed spirit. We we don't want to think that some new spirit has come into us. Um, Yes, the spirit of God indwells us, but our, our soul, as the old men would say, has been renovated, has been renewed. And it's all according, the confession says, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Again, we want to be sure that, that this is not something that we've earned, merited, rewarded uh, of our own good works, but it's according to what Jesus Christ did on that cross 2,000 years ago that you and I today can be sanctified. And, and I would add that it's only through the virtue of Christ and His meritorious sacrifice. There is nothing else that can come close. Um, here is a, uh, here's a quote. This is interesting from, from Benjamin Keach in a book that, entitled Gospel Mysteries. Speaking of this union with Christ and how we're sanctified by Him, by the Spirit, listen to what he says. As, speaking about our Lord, as the union of the divine nature sanctified the human nature. So he's saying, he's making the case that the, the divine nature of Christ sanctified the human nature as they came together in the person of Christ, in the womb of the virgin. Even so then, when sinners, though unclean in themselves, are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, they are actually sanctified and made holy. So as the divine and the human came together in the person of Christ, the, per, the human was sanctified. And as you and I, the divine of Christ and the human of man, come together in our union with Christ, we are also made holy, sanctified by the power and presence of God. He says, the spirit, which is the bond of our union on Christ's part, is a spirit of holiness or a spirit of sanctification. And as it is impossible for a branch to bear like fruit with the vine until it's been grafted in. So the branch cannot bear fruit unless it's grafted into the vine. And so it is impossible for sinners to be holy or to bring forth the fruits of holiness and sanctification until they are grafted in to Him by the Spirit and faith. He goes on to say, Though a person may be, you and I, 
so filthy and unclean before our union with Christ, this union does not leave us in our filth and in our pollution. But as we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in our justification, so we have also received the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, creating in our souls new habits, gracious dispositions by which we are then enabled and influenced to die unto sin and so to live unto God. And so Keach wants to point out the fact that it is the Spirit of God that is doing this work in us, that there will be no gospel fruit, there will be no, there will be no true good works, if you will, unless man has been united to Christ by the power of the Spirit. The confession then goes on to say that we are further sanctified. And the implication there is that we have been definitively sanctified. We have been set apart by God, made holy in that sense, claimed as His for a new purpose. But we are actually further sanctified from that point, really and personally. That is... Um, this sanctification is more than a pronouncement of God. It's not that He has just said, you are holy, but then it is really and practically and personally worked out in our lives. This is something that we experience. Amen? This is something that's going to have an effect upon us. It flows, as it says again, from the merits of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, It's not something we do on our own, but nonetheless, it is something that we will really and personally experience. If you're a Christian, your life will be changed. Amen? I think that's just the simplest way to put it. We'll talk as as we get there, Lord willing, that it will not always look pretty. It will be slow at times. You may be discouraged at times. If you're never discouraged about it, I don't know if you're really fighting. You know, there's times where we're discouraged. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But nonetheless, if you are in Christ, if these incredible things have happened to you, there will be change over time. You know, there will be. This is what uh, Louis Burkhoff has to say about sanctification. He says it may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which He delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin. So notice what he says. The justified sinner is the one in God's courtroom that has been declared righteous. God has pronounced that upon you. That's the verdict, the legal verdict for your soul. You're right in God's courtroom. But now God is delivering that justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. Or we can hear how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now you might look at your sanctification. I don't know why I'm looking for a ruler. I don't have a ruler in here. Um, we, we use the standard system or whatever we call the American system. But if you flip over the ruler, it has those really small notches, you know, and we might get down to millimeters. 
in our sanctification, at times it looks like one degree of glory to another. One, have I made a millimeter this year? I think I have. Lord willing, you look back over a decade or two and you see, hey, praise the Lord, God has done some work here or there. Um, But there is, as Paul says, one degree of glory from another, notch to notch. We are slowly but surely being sanctified by by the Lord. It is a real and personal experiential work that God is doing. Secondly, number two there, it is by His Word and Spirit. By His Word and Spirit. This is um, good for us to recognize that the same means that God uses to save is the means that He uses to sanctify. The work of sanctification is done as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. And I think it's not improper to say that the primary means, the primary means of the Spirit working through the Word is in the preaching of God's Word. Reformed tradition has seen, the Protestant tradition has seen the preaching of God's Word as the primary means of grace in our life. Not the only not to the exclusion of the others, but the word preach being the primary means of grace in our lives. Um, that said, that said, we ought not read this text that says that God is sanctifying by His Word and Spirit and assume that that process only happens in the preaching event. There does seem to be something unique that God is doing as the church gathers on the Lord's Day, publicly, corporately, um, in faith, receiving the means of grace, receiving the word that God does in that moment. It is a, it is a redemptive event. Um, but God sanctifies us by His Spirit through the word um, at any given time, Right? And it doesn't have to be that you heard the word in preaching. Maybe it is something you read, or maybe a friend exhorted you from the word. It's interesting to think about, and I, and I heard a, a, someone say this one time. I, wouldn't, I would not go this far. Um, but he said this. He said, reading your Bible is not a means of grace. Preaching is, reading your Bible is not. <laughs> and I had the same look that you have. What? And this is what he said. He said it can't be because for 1,500 years, Christians did not have Bibles to read on their own. And so God would not keep a means of grace from the church for a millennia and a half. Um, I think that thinking is a little bit misguided uh, because I would say that just because some part of the church does not have the fullness of what God might give doesn't necessarily mean that can't be a means of grace for others, right? Um, I think he was on to something in that in our day, we do not commonly in the American church value the preached word as the church has in the past because we have our own Bibles and because we can go home and study on our own and we can even ask Google what it means, right? We have the the internet Holy Spirit may be there to give us all the answers of what a text means. We have everything at our disposal. And so we don't really, we don't see the need as much as Christians in the past would have. Uh, nonetheless, I do think it is something for us just to ponder and always remember that 
We are in a somewhat unique time, the last 400 years or so, that we have Bibles of our own, that we read on our own. Um, a great blessing, for sure, but also um, brings other challenges into the church as we all see ourselves as our own interpreter, uh, not needing some, at least, the other teachers that God has given the church throughout the last 2,000 years. But nonetheless, whether it is from a sermon or from your own reading or from an exhortation that someone may have given you from the Word, God can take that Word at any given time by His Spirit and bring correction, conviction, reproof, right? Maybe it's a harsh word that you said, spoke to a loved one, and, and it's not that you opened your Bible. Maybe you did, but you don't need to open your Bible and see your sin right there on the page. God brings up the lifetime of sitting under the preached word, the lifetime of, of reading the Bible in your quiet time, and he uses that word to bring conviction. Or maybe it's a sinful decision, something you knew better of than engaging in at work, and uh, the Lord brings that conviction from his word. It can be in a live event of the word being exhorted, but it very often is something from the past, right? Something from this past Lord's Day or last year or, or who knows when, uh, a memory verse that you have memorized or what have you. But God uses his word. It is the, the tool that he is using, um, whether it's directly from a Bible verse or uh, a more generic commandment from the scriptures it is the word by the spirit that is sanctifying us thirdly it says there that the whole the whole body of sin is destroyed the whole body of sin is destroyed let me read the confession by his word and spirit dwelling in them the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed we might read that and say, what's going on? Because I still sin, right? I still fall short. But they're, they're thinking about at least, you know, they're thinking about the Bible. But one place is Romans chapter 6. And Paul says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Listen again to William Lyford, Laford, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He says, This whole body of sin he nailed to the cross. He took it out of the way. And this is being done by Christ, our head, as a public Person. Remember, this is technical language. As a covenant head in the room or stead or place of all of the elect. And we, having communion with him by faith, are made partakers of all that he did, in all that he suffered, in all that he conquered. All is as really ours, as if we had done it in our person. He says, as in the first Adam, there was a spring of human nature corrupted, and we receive that corruption by natural generation because Adam is our great-great-granddad. So in the second Adam, there is a fountain of the same nature restored, which we have received by spiritual 
generation. So that by fellowship with Christ in his sufferings, our body of sin is destroyed. And we have from him an imputed sanctification as well as an imputed righteousness. Interesting. And so what we're saying here is that the dominion or the enslavement of sin has been conquered. Sin no longer masters you, Christian, as it once did. And we might say with, with certain sins experientially that sometimes it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, but we also might say in other areas where God has gloriously set us free. And everyone's experience is different. You know, there are some that have spent a life addicted to various drugs and, and they embrace the gospel and the Lord just flips the switch and it's gone, right? I mean, I've heard guys say that they didn't even, they didn't even withdraw from, from heroin. They just, the, the Lord blessed them. Um, and the temptations are taken away. And there are others uh, that are not as fortunate, that struggle with the, the vestiges of a past life and the scars that, that those things bring, whatever that sin may be. Um, but nonetheless, that dominion that sin once had, that, that power that it had you in its shackles, have been broken. The enslavement has been overcome by the power of, of the spirits. Notice, we're not saying that uh, all sin is gone, because look at the next line. Um, it says that the, the several lusts thereof, the lusts of our sin, are more and more weakened and mortified. Fourthly, the, the, the lust of sin is weakened, and the strength of grace increases over, over time. Uh, listen to Colossians chapter 1. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so there is a work of God that is happening there as a man is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, seeking to be fully pleasing to Him. By the power of the Spirit, we are bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, we keep seeing this idea that I want to point out that the, the knowledge of God is, is, is directly connected to growing in sanctification, growing in grace, growing in hope, growing in trust, growing in a, 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 a desire of Christ and a diminishing desire for the flesh. Or Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so there is in our lives a, a progressive growing in the grace of God and a progressive weakening of the power, allure, and joy of sin. The more Christ becomes precious, and the more precious Christ becomes, the more sin becomes vile and foolish and empty and vain. But, like the dog, we return to our filth, even still at times. 
Secondly, then, the struggle with sin and sanctification. Anybody? Paragraph 2, this sanctification is throughout the whole man. All of us, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption in every part of the whole man, wherefrom arises a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So two things that we see here in the true believer. The first is remaining corruption, and the second is an irreconcilable war has begun. Why don't we turn to Romans chapter 7. Now, the standard, conservative, Protestant, Reformed view is that Paul here in Romans chapter 7 is speaking of himself as a Christian. There you will find people that will say that's not the case. Uh, Jacob Arminius, who is the father, if, you, if I can say that, of Arminians, uh, one of the first things that began to get him in trouble when he was teaching in a Reformed seminary was that he began to teach Romans 7, that this is speaking of Paul as he was unregenerate before he was a believer um, but that has not been the common view, and he, that was one of the things that he got in trouble for. Um, he also taught universal, universal election, that God elects all men. 7.15, this is Paul, uh, Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Anybody ever been there? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. And so there's this war, right? There's, there's, there is sin still in Paul, clearly, that he's battling with. And I, I, I think this is, uh, many reasons, but I think this is him as a believer because he's saying that I want to do what is right. I know what is good. I know what is true, and I want to do that. But I don't always do it, right? I find myself doing the opposite. How foolish is this? And he would say at the end, oh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Deliverance does come. And so sin no longer rules. It no longer masters you. It no longer dominates you. Satan, in a positive, power has been given to the believer to overcome the flesh. But the flesh is still present. Sinful nature is still there, and and thus it must be mortified. It has to be put to death. We have to overcome the remnant, if you will, of sin that abides in the heart. And so the confession says that there is then an irreconcilable war. That is a war that in this life will never be reconciled. You will never completely overcome the, the flesh will not completely conquer the spirit, 
but the, the Spirit of Christ in us will not in this life fully conquer the flesh until uh, the day of glory, until Christ returns or until we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. A few texts I want to read to you. The first is Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So again, here's the life of a Christian dealing with both sides of this coin, the Spirit and the flesh needing to walk by the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 6.13, here's what you were, part of what you were saying, Dustin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace a verse that has been wildly abused and misused. Um, Too many Christians have read that to say, throw the Ten Commandments away. We're not under the law. We don't need God's law any longer. We're under grace. This is a dispensation of grace. And so we are saved by faith, and that's all that matters. What he's saying there is we're not under the law as a covenant. We're under grace as a covenant. We are not bound to keep the entirety of the law or be condemned as we were under the covenant of works. We are now under a covenant of grace, um, but that does not negate the need of walking in righteousness, obeying God's commands. 2 Corinthians 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So this is part of the war that we are in, that, is, that, we're, that we're waging against uh, the flesh. It says there the war, the war that's happening is the mortification of sin and the cultivation of grace. Sam Waldron calls this spiritual replacement The old man's habits must be replaced by the new. When I was an unbeliever, I would get up in the morning before work and eat my cereal and turn on SportsCenter. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about SportsCenter. Um, But as a Christian, if I have 20 minutes before work, Lord willing, I've found something better to do with the short time that I have is I want to prepare my heart for the work day instead of hearing what the talking heads have to say about my team and the outlook of the game this coming Sunday. Um, That's maybe a silly illustration, but the habits of the old man need to be replaced. Sometimes we say, we call this putting on and putting off, right? So the, the Christian is now called to put on Christ, to clothe ourselves with Christ. That's, a, that's an action that we take, and it's an ongoing thing that we have to do. It's not something 
that he's not talking about something positionally. Yes, you have been robed with the righteousness of Christ. In that sense, Christ has been put on and he will never be taken off. But we are to daily clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus. We are to daily put on Christ. That is sinful thoughts, sinful habits, sinful practices, sinful beliefs, sinful patterns all need to be replaced. When you became a Christian, especially if you lived a licentious life in the world before that, um, the day that you believe the gospel and God saved your soul, or even if you did not live a licentious life, there were many things that still needed to change. Amen? Many things. Many things that are still, you're still working on to this day. Right? Thought processes and habits and practices and friends and who knows what. A whole host of things that needed to be redeemed, put to death. And so we're called positively to put on the new and negatively to put off the old. Why don't you turn to Colossians chapter 3. I think Paul really just lays this out so well here. Adam must be put to death and Christ must be put on every day. Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is something that we actively do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set. So we are to seek and then we are to set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so we are to seek things that are above. We are to set our minds on things that are above. But then negatively, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. These are things that condemn men to hell, that God will pour out wrath on the day of judgment for. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So do you notice how he, how he frames that in verse 7? In these you once walked. This was your manner of life. You lived in these practices. They were the norm for you. It is who you were. It is what you were about. You didn't really care. It wasn't a big deal. It was just what people do. Now, he says, you must put them all away. Now, has anybody in here since you became a Christian been angry? Been filled with wrath? Slander? Has obscene talk ever come out of your mouth? I trust that it has. I trust that you've lied to others. But his point is that you once walked here. You once were identified by these sins and you lived in them. But now, as a believer... 
You have died to them. You have put off the old self. So put these things away. Lord willing, I hope if you're in Christ, your sin is not what marks you or identifies you. Nonetheless, it rears its ugly head, sometimes more often than we would hope. And so Paul says that these must be put away. And as you've put off the old self with its practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. One more text I think is worth reading is Ephesians chapter 4. As we saw this past Lord's Day, chapters 1 through 3 are the the theology really of the gospel, the theology of redemption. Chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians are uh, the practical outworkings of the new man, the new life. Um, Let me find my place here. Verse 25 of chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And so do you see there's a putting off of the ways of Adam, of the ways of the old man. But it's not enough that we just say, I'm no longer going to be a liar. Now we need to walk in the truth. We need to make the effort to to be men and women that walk in the light. He goes on to say, um, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so he's putting off the old habits of being a thief, but he's also now working hard with his hands, putting on godly, honest work. Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. So instead of tearing down others, it's not just to say, I'm not gossiping about everyone and speaking awfully about them behind their back, but now I want to build up. I want to repent of that and walk in something completely new in the opposite of what I I once was. And so you see there's this turning away from that which is old. There's a putting to death the flesh, but also putting on the things of God and walking new in Jesus. This is really how this war is is to take place. And so we... we, um, it, it, maybe we could relate it to a diet, and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat sugar and ho-hos and ding-dongs and zingers. I mean, you could live on that, right? You might not, you might not be living very well, but you could live on, on that. It was that guy that did the documentary that ate McDonald's every day for a month to see what it would do to his body? Um, you could live. Right? But you're not really living, but you're going you're to say, I'm done with all that. Well, now, what are you going to do? Right? What's the positive? What's the change going to be? What's the transformation? And so we're putting off the old man, but we're also replacing him with something new, which is basically 
us being conformed into the image of, of Jesus. Thirdly, then, the progress of sanctification, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after in heavenly life, in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. We need to be clear, unless someone tell you otherwise, that striving for holiness is not a practice that is in opposition to the gospel. Right? As long as such striving is evangelical obedience, not legal obedience. That is, that is obedience that flows from the fact that I have been saved, not obedience that tries to somehow cooperate with God to aid in my salvation or to preserve my salvation as if my good works merit some standing before God. Fred Malone, a pastor uh, out, of, out of Louisiana and a professor of mine, says that we often ought to be asking people, are you, are you born again? That We need to ask this person over and over the same questions, but are you born again? Do you love the brethren? Do you love Christ? Do you love God's law? Your best works are but glittering sins without the new birth. Without the new birth of grace, you have no communion with God. He says, look to God as revealed in Scripture. Believe its testimony concerning your nature. Believe in Christ and His power to save and change you. Repent of sin and flee to Christ. Die to self at His feet and live to Him. You cannot make yourself be born again. But you can take the Word of God as true. And act upon it by calling upon the Lord to save you. And in so calling, believe that he will not cast you out. Now when we think about sanctification, a question that might come up is, is this something that is by faith alone? Or is it something that we cooperate in? Right? I, I think, and you know, I'm not the brightest guy out there uh, by any measure, but it seems that sometimes we can try to be more reformed in the Bible, you know, and, and everything has to be um, a sovereign work of God alone. Um, but Sam Waldron points out that, and this is what I, when I didn't really push back, but when I responded, Dustin, to what you said about the reckoning, um, this is what I had in mind, that the Bible says the things we are to positively then do, right? And so Sam Waldron points out some things that the Bible says that, that yes, I think it's good for us to say that any degree of glory to the next that we are sanctified is the work of the Spirit of God, ultimately. But the Lord commands us to walk in holiness and to put sin to death. And so Waldron points out a few things here that the, the, the Bible commands us. The first is that we are to even have foresight when it comes to sin. Romans 13 and 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that is, I'm thinking about tomorrow and next week. 
in, in, in my sin? What is this situation that I might have coming up? Is there a way that I can be wise about it to not make an opportunity or see an opportunity for myself? Or what are some things that I might be prone to here or there? And I want to not even make a provision, not even give the, the opportunity for myself to stumble if I can be wise and foresee such an event. He also says that the Bible commends to us learning and reading and hearing and stuttering, uh, stuttering, studying. <laughs> uh, Romans 12 and 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so our mind is renewed by the Bible as we come more and more in contact with the God of Scripture and His Word. The Bible commands us in this pursuit of sanctification that we gather together with one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible commands us to, or, or commends to us watching and praying. Watching and praying, Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there is a, 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 a wisdom there, right? And not just saying, hey, I'm good, I'm in Christ, he's set me apart, and so I don't have to be concerned with my own flesh. No, we ought to be watchmen on the wall guard our souls and the souls of our of our loved one and our fellow church members the reality as the confession says and we'll we'll wrap it up here is that this process at times may feel very slow we may see brothers and sisters around us and it may seem that they are progressing much faster than than we are why are why are they so joyful in the lord why are they seemingly able to overcome their sins, and I'm stuck in this rut forever. We may be called to bear the burdens of others in the church and in our homes or wherever else who seem to struggle to mortify sin, who struggle to delight in Jesus in a consistent manner, who struggle to see much of a heart change over time. And as the confession says, the remaining corruption in us may at times prevail. We may backslide or, or fall back into some foolish habits, state of mind, thought process, whatever it is. But it says a continual supply of strength is given by the Spirit. So Christian, you have what you need. Right? You have the supply of the Spirit. You have the Word. And so the Scripture says clearly that you should and you can grow in the grace of God. So press on, beloved, in gospel obedience. In obedience because you have been saved, not to be saved. Press on, as it says there, toward a heavenly life. See the good of the abiding moral law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments as the commands of Christ, your head and king. Do not grow weary in right doing. And when you fall, and you will fall, Know that your sin no longer condemns you. So get up. Set your minds upon 
Set your mind upon Christ. Reckon yourself, as our brother said. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And thus put to death what is earthly in you. Strive for the holiness, the book of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. But do all this while you rest in the grace of gospel assurance that if you are in Christ, you will never be cast out. Amen. And so we press on in Jesus, trusting that he has given us an abundant supply that we need and also knowing that when we fall short, we are not cast off. We are not, he's not counting up the number of times that you've sinned against him, beloved, waiting for that one to send you off into condemnation. No, he's like the loving father that sees the child fall and fail and wants to embrace them and encourage them and see them renewed in hope and in holiness. So let's press on. Let me pray.